Chapter 4 The Family Table by Randy Booth God prepares a table for us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23 The liturgy is practice for life. We start the first day of each week gathered at the family table to renew our strength in preparation for the week ahead. We're not doing the liturgy. Rather, we are preparing to live the liturgy. This is why there is nothing we do each week that is more important than worship. Gathering at a particular place, the table, with a particular people, the household of God. We are sent forth to live with fresh focus on life, covenant renewal. The Profundity of the Lord's Table B.A. Garish noted that there has always been a close link between the Church's understanding of the nature of the sacrament and the attention she gives to it. Use tends to follow perceived significance. If something does not mean much, then we would expect to see it used very little. When the communion table is neglected, the people of God are malnourished. He also points to Nevin's view that What a man thinks of the Lord's table is a clear indication of what he will think of Christ, the Church, and theology itself. R.C. Sproul writes, The light of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is in eclipse. The shadows of postmodern relativism have covered the table. For the Lord's Supper to be restored to the spiritual life of the Church, there must be an awakening to its meaning, significance, and power. John Calvin elaborates on the significance of the Lord's table. God has received us, once for all, into his family, to hold us not only as servants, but as sons, thereafter to fulfill the duties of a most excellent father concerned for his offspring. He undertakes also to nourish us throughout the course of our life, and not content with this alone, he has willed, by giving his pledge, to assure us of this continuing liberality. To this end, therefore, he has, through the hand of his only begotten Son, given to his church another sacrament, that is, a spiritual banquet, wherein Christ attests himself to be the life-giving bread, upon which our souls feed unto true and blessed immortality. The signs are bread and wine, which represent for us the invisible food we receive from the flesh and blood of Christ. Now Christ is the only food of our soul. And therefore, our Heavenly Father invites us to Christ that, refreshed by partaking of Him, we may repeatedly gather strength until we shall have reached heavenly immortality. Since the table is diminished and disappearing from the church, it is also diminishing and disappearing from our homes. The two are connected. Fast food and drive throughs have replaced the family table. This follows in the wake of seeker-friendly worship and a casual view of the Lord's table. Eating together around a table used to mean something. The Lord's table is the archetype of our family tables. 
Or perhaps we should say that our family tables should be an imitation or reflection of the Lord's table. Remember, liturgy is life. What we do here means something. It sends a message. It teaches a lesson. We come to the Lord's table each Lord's day to be fed by the Father, who meets our needs above and beyond all that we could ask or think. He has given us life. He sustains that life. He protects that life. The table is the very image of fatherhood, the essence of which is love. We begin each week gathered around the table as children to be instructed and nourished just before we are sent out to live. And so, too, we go to our homes and gather around smaller tables to be instructed and nourished, and from there we also fan out to live and to love. The liturgy is practice for life. The Lord's Table has many metaphors by which we see the depth and simplicity of God's work. We see the seriousness of our sin and the magnitude of Christ's sacrifice, the grace of God in giving His Son, the peace that is made between us and Him, the power of the resurrection, the declaration of His death and all its implications, the hope of His return, and the communion of saints. It's a simple picture of the Gospel so simple that a child can understand. It's an appeal to all five senses. It's the image of the intimacy of the groom and his bride, not unlike the marriage bed. It's the family table, where we receive food, nourishment, and joy, and where we share and serve, and we are served. It's the place of gratitude and thanksgiving. It's all of this and much more. It's both light and deep. The table is the geographic center of the church and the home. The table is so profound that it encompasses every dimension of our lives and, therefore, a variety of descriptions and expressions are appropriate. Every trip to the table should be exciting, enlightening, and renewing, but they don't all have to be exactly the same. A prepared table. A table in the presence of our enemies. There is a curious mystery that does battle in my mind. On the one hand, we live in a world full of sin and misery. Think of the multitude of individual sins, ours and others, along with all their minor and major consequences, the pain and suffering of sickness, injury and death, the sadness of weariness and loss. This world is a very ugly place. On the other hand, as Christians, we at the same time live in a world wholly unlike the one I just described. God's Word tells us to live with contentment and even joy in the midst of these very trials. We are called to rejoice in and for all things, all the imperfect things. In the midst of the ugliness of a fallen world, we are instructed to see with different eyes and hear with different ears. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, Whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Philippians 4, 8-9 More than that, we are commanded to give thanks in and for everything. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, 
pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 15-18 The answer to this curious mystery lies in the fact that we, the redeemed of God, have been and are being rescued from the former world of sin and misery. We have begun that process, here and now, whereby we will indeed arrive at our final destination, a place free of sin and misery. While we are not waiting for pie in the sky by and by, we have actually already begun receiving the benefits of redemption. Paul calls us to give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1.12-14 This new life is set in contrast with the old. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given Himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Ephesians 5, 1-4 Even when we are troubled by the evil and the dreadful things of this world, we are exhorted to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 4-7 As we come to our loaded boards and behold the sights and aromas and tastes and textures of God's goodness, we should see with new eyes that God has indeed prepared a table for us in the presence of our enemies. It is one more token of redemption begun. It is the appetizer before the eternal marriage feast of the Lamb. Let us give thanks. The Lord's Table and Our Tables At the Lord's Table, if we each just come in and picked up some bread and wine when it suited us, and then consumed it privately, we would not be discerning the Lord's body, and we would not be joining in communion. We would be missing the point. The table is the meeting place where we remember who we are and what has been done for us. We remember that we are dependent and that God is our provider. We remember that we are not our own, but belong to Christ and are members of one another. We enter into fellowship with God as He serves us and with one another as we share this meal. We are nourished and renewed at this table. We leave this table, therefore, ready to live in the context of all those lessons. Similar things should be taught and received at our daily family tables. But this great table is where we start. It is here where things are set right, and our lives as Christians are brought into their proper focus. The meal is simple, but the lessons are large. Let us eat this covenant meal and renew our covenant oath of loyalty to our triune God. We must start thinking about our family tables as little versions of the Lord's table. We are still His people when we leave here. Having practiced the liturgy, we leave to live it. 
Too many families have abandoned or neglected the family table. Between fast food, drive throughs and TV, few families sit down and eat together. Much less do we self-consciously develop the table as a place of communion. We must gather around our individual family tables to commune with God and with one another. The parallels are powerful and important. As Robert Ferrer Capon puts it, the table defines both the room it occupies and the household that gathers around it. It is the other first investment, the bed being the other, and as long as the household lasts, it remains the one thing that everybody uses most the one and often the only place where the family meets, in fact. The table is to be a picture of hospitality, provision, and peace, but it's not automatic. Like the Lord's table, the family table has become a place where things happen. Capon continues about the table. Think of it first as a thing. To begin with, it is matter, not thought. It is not with us as the living room furniture is with us because we think it's a good idea, but with us as the bed is with us, because we cannot function without it. The poorest house has a table, and is by that very thing not so poor after all. But because it is a thing, because it is true to itself, it comes to us as things always come, raw, intractable, and unfinished. Planks on packing crates, or polished mahogany on delicate turnings, it is only itself. It will not turn from table into board on its own motion any more than box spring and mattress will become marriage bed, without considerable care. It is there, and it is suitable, but the household that gathers around it must work to bring it into the dance. The table enters the exchanges of the family exactly as the stage enters into the ballet, as a thing, as itself, by being faithful to its own mute and stubborn materiality. It is the floor that makes possible the marvelous leap of grace. It is also the floor that punishes the less than marvelous one with disgrace. The table can make us or break us. It has its own laws and will not change. Food and litter will lie upon it. Fair speech and venom will pour across it. It will be the scene of manners or meanness, the place of charity or the wall of division, depending. Depending on what is done with it, at it, and about it. But whatever is done, however it enters, it will allow only the possible, not the ideal. No one has ever created the board by fiat. God himself spread his table, but Judas sat down at it. There is no use thinking that all we have to do is wish for a certain style of family life and wait for it to happen. The board is a union of thing and persons. What it becomes depends on how the thing is dealt with by the persons. There is one result, however, which will be produced automatically. The board will always give birth to liturgy. Habits of form and order develop, consciously or unconsciously, at our tables, and these forms inevitably shape how we live. They will either be haphazard, or else they will be full of meaning and purpose but it is an inescapable concept that our table liturgy both reflects and directs who we are and who we will become. Furthermore, like the Lord, our shepherd, in Psalm 23, we too shall prepare our tables in the presence of our enemies. Life is full of enemies, including our own sinfulness, but the table is a place of victory and peace. 
It is a place of nourishment and encouragement. It is always a reminder of God's goodness to us. I realized, as I was teaching a series on child-rearing, that the family table is the place where it all comes together. We wash before we come to the table. Here we are served, and we have the opportunity to serve. We have rules and instruction to govern us. Take off your hat. We have discipline. Don't kick your sister. Go to your room until you can act right, and so on. We have communion and fellowship. It is a place of thanksgiving and gratitude. It is a place of love. The table should cause us to pause regularly and refocus on the importance of our Christian households. Ultimate Redemption of All Things When God first created the world, God gave the creation to Adam as food. I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. Genesis 1.29 Adam was invited to the great banquet of creation so that he could eat and drink and rejoice in his God. All creation was a means for enjoying fellowship with the Creator. That is the final destiny of the creation as well. In the renewed heavens and earth of the consummation, we will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb, the supper of the kingdom, forever. Many will come from the east and west to recline with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus in the kingdom. And we are already enjoying that feast now. In this old creation, we are celebrating the feast of the new creation. With the bread and wine of the old world, we are anticipating the feast of the resurrection world. Even now in these decaying bodies, we feed on the body and blood of Jesus. The Lord's table points to the consummation of all things. Every week, the world of the future becomes present. At this meal, the fruits of the earth, the grain and new wine and oil, are made into the food of communion. The bread and wine of this table point to the destiny of all created things. It anticipates the time for which the creation eagerly waits, the time when creation will be set free of its slavery to corruption into the glorious freedom of the sons of God. From here, we are sent to our homes to repeat these lessons, to live them, connecting our worship to the way we live with one another. There. At our little tables, we apply what we learn at the great table of the Lord. Conclusion We gather again and again around our tables, small societies of Christians, learning to commune and share, to pray and talk, to receive and give thanks, to serve and be served, to love one another and be renewed. We cannot neglect such an important huddle without the fragmentation of our little societies. Develop it, guard it, and practice it often.